Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 38, 2 Samuel chapter 24. This is the final lesson in the 2 Samuel series. Well, this is going to be our 38th and final lesson in 2 Samuel. We will have spent 83 lessons in total in the entire book of Samuel combined. Okay, 1st and 2nd Samuel. Now recall that originally what we have today are four separate Bible books, 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings. This was at one time but one large work that became divided by Hebrew scholars into two books. It happened, as a matter of fact, in Alexandria, Egypt, and even before the birth of Christ. And the first book was called the Book of Kingdoms. The second book called the Book of Kings. Kingdoms was further later divided into 1st and 2nd Samuel. Kings later divided into 1st and 2nd Kings. This didn't harm anything. It was just an attempt to make this enormous work more readable and a little bit easier to work with. So let's begin today by rereading 2 Samuel chapter 24. Second Samuel chapter 24, if you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 364. The anger of Adonai blazed up against Israel, so he moved David to act against them by saying, Go, take a census of Israel and Judah. And the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go, systematically, through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, take a census of the population so that I can know how many people there are. And Joab said to the king, May Adonai your God add to the people a hundredfold, no matter how many there are, and may the eyes of my lord the king see it. But why does my lord the king take pleasure in doing this? However, the king's word prevailed against Joab and the army officers. So Joab and the army officers went out from the king's presence to take a census of the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan, they pitched camp in Aroer to the south of the city of, uh, in the Wadi of Gad. They went on to Yasser. They came to Gilead and continued to the land of Takhtim Hochi. Then they arrived at Don Ya'an, went around to Zidon and came to the stronghold of Zor. They went on to the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites and finished in the south of Judah at Beersheba. When they were done going throughout all the land, they came back to Jerusalem. It had taken nine months and twenty days. And Yoav reported the results of the census to the king. There were in Israel 800,000 valiant men who could handle a sword, while the men of Judah numbered 500,000. But after he had taken the census, David was conscience-stricken. David said to Adonai, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now, Adonai, please put aside your servant's sin, for I have done a very foolish thing. And when David got up in the morning, this word of Adonai came to the prophet Gad, David's seer. 
Go in and say to David that this is what Adonai says. I am giving you a choice of three punishments. Choose one of them and I will execute it against you. And Gad came to David and told him and he said, Do you want seven years of famine in your land? Or do you want to flee before your enemies for three months while they pursue you? Or do you want three days of plague in your land? Think about it. Tell me what to answer the one who sent me. Now David said to Gad, This is very hard for me. Let us fall into the hand of Adonai, because his mercies are great, rather than have me fall into the hand of man. So Adonai sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the evening of the specified time. Seventy thousand of the people died between Dan and Beersheba. But when the angel stretched out his hand towards Jerusalem to destroy it, Adonai changed his mind about causing such distress and said to the angel destroying the people, Enough! Withdraw your hand. The angel of Adonai was at the threshing floor of Arunah the Jebusite. And David spoke to Adonai when he saw the angel striking the people and he said, Here, I have sinned, I have done wrong, but these sheep, what have they done? Please, let your hand be against me and against my father's family. Gad came to David that day and said to him, Go, set up an altar to Adonai on the threshing floor of Arunah the Jebusite. David went up and did what Gad had said and Adonai had ordered. Arunah looked out and saw the king and his servants coming towards him. Arunah went out and prostrated himself before the king with his face to the ground. And Arunah said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said, To buy your threshing floor in order to build an altar to Adonai so that the plague will be lifted from the people. And Arunah said to David, Well, let my lord the king take and offer up anything that seems good to him. Here, here are the oxen for the burnt offering. You can use the threshing sleds, the yokes of the oxen as firewood. All this, O king, Arunah gives to the king. And then Arunah said to the king, May Adonai your God accept you. But the king said to Arunah, No, I insist on buying it from you at a price. I refuse to offer Adonai my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for one and one quarter pounds of silver shekels. Then David built an altar to Adonai there, offered burnt offerings and peace offerings, and after this, Adonai took pity on the land and lifted the plague from Israel. Now last week, we dealt with the difficult opening verse that in English seems to say that God told David to go and to take a census of the people of Israel and Judah. Now what we found was that God incited David towards thinking wrong thoughts. And the purpose for this was as a means for the Lord to punish his people using his usual way. And that usual way is by using a person or a nation to bring oppression upon Israel in consequence for Israel's sin. Now these wrong thoughts in David produced his self-centered and egotistical royal mandate 
that the army should go around and conduct a census. Now, did God put this exact thought into David's mind? Now, while reasonable people can differ on the answer to this question, my own position is that he did not. Rather, the thought to conduct a census came from David's own evil inclination. David's Yetzer Hara. That every human, redeemed or not, Hebrew or Gentile, we're all born with it. We'll live with it until we're separated from these fleshly bodies at death. In fact, we noticed that in First Chronicles, which is the parallel story to this event, that the claim is that it's the adversary, Satan, who put this thought of a census into David's mind. Now, such an idea fits well. It makes sense. Because the good inclination is the realm of godly thoughts, while the evil inclination is the realm of wicked thoughts. God does not dwell within our evil inclinations, and Satan does not dwell within our good inclinations. So it's self-evident that while Yehovah incited David to consult with his own evil inclination, it was the adversary who resided in David's evil inclination whose thought David agreed to. Now this admittedly is a hard explanation of how the Lord, the adversary, and David all had roles in this process. But it's hard mainly because we're trying to use human words, human thoughts, to express spiritual circumstances. This reality has challenged Hebrews and Christians in all ages, and especially in the modern age where humanism is all the rage, even within Judaism and the church. And it is such that we either elevate our ways or lower his ways to put God and man on approximately equal footing. So when we forget this critical passage from the book of Isaiah, then we tend to get especially confused or misled. I'm speaking about Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. It says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways, says Adonai. As high as the sky is above the earth, my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts higher than your thoughts. So this is a good time to remind you that so much of the figurative speech about God that we read in chapters 22 and 23 that attributes human emotions and thoughts as also being the same in God. All this is also present in the final chapter of 2 Samuel. And we left off last week with David calling for his general of the army, telling him to go around 
conduct the census of all people under David's monarchy. And we found that the word that was translated into go around or roaming or go to and fro is in Hebrew shoot. And shoot is a Hebrew word that's associated with a wicked intent. And so when David instructed Joab to shoot and count the citizens of Israel, it was immediately clear that to do so was wrong. It was going to have malignant effects. Now the worldly and politically adept Joab knows that what David is ordering is going to be highly unwelcomed by the people of Israel. And so it could produce some dangerous unintended consequences. Well, in verse 2, we find David's rationale for ordering the census. It was so that I can know how many people there are. In other words, it was mainly or merely because David could stop and assess just how big his kingdom had become. And just like for most any Christian or Jewish congregation leader, it seems that knowing how many people who are in their flock is important to them. Often there's sound and good reason to need to know this information. But often is not. The seeking of this data also has more to do with an egocentric notion. It's about measuring institutional and personal success based on quantity. And in general, God's principle is that there is but a small handful of specific divine reasons for a leader needing to know and pay attention to quantity. Especially as it concerns people. And what else is a census but the name of a procedure to ascertain the quantity of people. My point is that there was nothing particularly pressing or essential that David needed to know such that he needed an accurate counting of his subjects. This was all based on personal aggrandizement to a, you know, to a large extent. Even the rabbis who at all costs try to protect David's image, they agree with this. Joab knew this. And so he openly challenged the king of Israel's motivation for ordering this dangerous decree. And in verse 3, Joab essentially says, and I'm going to paraphrase, Look, I hope along with you that since arriving in Canaan that our population has increased a, a hundred times over. It's an exaggeration. We all know our population is large and it's growing, but does it really matter what the precise number is? So what is it about doing this census that you are hoping is going to give you personal pleasure? See, that last question is somewhat rhetorical. Joab fully understands that unless there is some underlying reason or grand plan 
that Joab isn't aware of, and that's unlikely, then he is baffled by why David would undertake such an enormous and an unpopular program. But the aged David, who's on the downside of both his career as a king and in his relationship with God, dismisses Joab's objections. And so in verse 4, the army sets about to dutifully, although reluctantly, follow the king's order to count the people of Israel and Judah. Now the obvious question at this point is, what's so wrong with the census? What is so wrong about a census? Now in order to get to the answer, we have to attack this issue on both the earthly human and the spiritual divine levels. At this point in chapter 24, the issues are earthly and human. From a political viewpoint, a census would have made the people very uneasy and suspicious. After David's series of indiscretions, especially with Bathsheba, his obvious attitude that he was at times above the law, and two rebellions that demonstrated the dissatisfaction and mistrust of the government among substantial segments of Israeli society, conducting a census couldn't be more ill-timed. Setting aside a king's self-centered desire simply to enjoy the extent of his empire, kind of not unlike the mental picture we get of Midas laying upon a mountainous pile of golden coins and lavishing in his untold riches. There were the typical practical governmental reasons for counting people, none of which did the people particularly care for. And the two primary reasons for counting was for taxation and for conscription into the army. Now up to now, it doesn't appear that there was any formal system of taxation under David. However, without doubt, there had to be some means of revenue coming in for him. But that was going to change when his son Solomon took over. So on the one hand, the primary fear for the average citizen would have been conscription into the army. Now we mustn't forget that David maintained only a rather small personal bodyguard and a very modest professional army that consisted mostly of leaders and officers. And when a war was contemplated, an army was formed as a militia from among the the civilian citizenry. Farmers and herders and craftsmen would lay aside, tending flocks and herds and fields and making goods in exchange for taking up arms. Now such a thing was quite a sacrifice on the people of Israel. Because when the adult males were away at war, the burden of supporting their families fell primarily to the women. 
Thus when Joab and his officers went throughout the nation to count the people, the immediate suspicion was war was coming. You know, it's just like it is today in the USA. People come down strongly on both sides of the issue when it comes to military conflict. Such a thing often causes great division within a society. David seemed unconcerned about such prospects, while Joab knew that whether David did harbor a secret plan for a foreign war of conquest, or if the census itself caused eruption of civil unrest, Joab and his men were going to wind up right in the middle of it. But then there's also the spiritual divine side of the matter of a census. For Israel, a census was supposed to always be for a godly purpose. As an example, this one I'm about to tell you about was for the purpose of redemption. Don't go there, I'm just going to read this to you from Exodus chapter 30, verses 11 through 16. Adonai said to Moshe, When you take a census of the people of Israel and register them, each upon registration is to pay a ransom for his life to Adonai to avoid any breakout of plague among them during the time of the census. Everyone subject to the census is to pay as an offering to Adonai half a shekel by the standard of the sanctuary shekel. Everyone over 20 years of age who is subject to the census is to give this offering to Adonai. The rich is not to give more, the poor less than the half shekel when giving Adonai's offering to atone for your lives. You are to take the atonement money from the people of Israel and use it for the service in the tent of meeting so that it will be a reminder to the people of Israel before Adonai to atone for your lives. A later, another God-ordained census in Numbers, Book of Numbers, starts off like this. And it was for the purpose of holy war. Numbers 1.1 Adonai spoke to Moshe in the Sinai desert in the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month of the second year after they had left Egypt. And he said, take a census of the entire assembly of the people of Israel by clans and by families. Record the names of all the men, 20 years old and over, who are subject to military service in Israel. You and Aaron are to enumerate them company by company. So what we see from this is as a God principle that a census must be God-ordained and it must be for a purpose in line with God's will and His Torah. Secondly, that the Exodus passage, the first one I read to you, seems to indicate that the divinely prescribed penalty for doing a census outside of God's protocol and outside of His instructions is a plague. 
And of course, that's exactly what we see happen as a result of David's census. So in verse 5, the army led by Joab sets off to compass the land and make the count. And the territory that is listed in this passage essentially covers the land that was currently under control of David's monarchy in Jerusalem. Now, while there is evidence that the exact route as listed might be missing parts of it, the general route of it comports very well with other texts and what's known from that era. He starts off at a place called Aroer that's located on the established boundary between the tribe of Gad and the nation of Moab. Then they went north, up through the territory of Gad, traveling up the middle of that tribal district. And from there they arrived at Yatzer, which was an Israelite border fortification established to defend against the kingdom of Ammon, the kingdom of Jordan in our time. They continued north through Gilead to a place that's called Takhtim Hochi. Now there's scholarly disagreement as to what the true name of this place is. Rashi explains that Hochi means new. So the place is called New Takhtim. Likely this is not so much a formal name for a city. It's just a way to describe a newly settled area. The Greek Septuagint takes the, that, that approach. That this is referring to some place within the large territory of Bashan. Now probably both Rashi and the Septuagint are correct. But anyway, from there Joab bends to the northwest to a place in the territory of Dan called Ya'an that was located at the foot of Mount Hermon. This was going to mark the northernmost boundary of Israel for the time being. Now recall that Dan had moved there many years earlier from the area they had been originally assigned by Moses and Joshua. Their original territory was located on the western side of central Canaan and they migrated north because they couldn't overcome the Philistines. And after that, the census team traveled across what today is called the Upper Galilee along the border with Sidon onto the fortress of Zor. From there, it starts to get pretty hazy. There is this strange reference to the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites. And this has frustrated historians and Bible scholars because not a single specific city is listed. No matter. The route makes it clear that these cities are all in the northern part of the promised land. But it seems logical that this is referring to the conditions that are discussed Back in Judges, Judges 1, 27 through 35, because there there is a list of towns that had been left unconquered in the various districts that had been assigned to these 12 Israelite tribes. So this also seems to answer the mystery of whatever became of those Canaanite and Hivite cities in that list in Judges. And it explains that while for perhaps two centuries or so, these cities had remained independent from Israel. 
but more or less on friendly terms with Israel. That by David's day, they had actually assimilated socially and politically into the kingdom of Israel. So there was undoubtedly a great deal of intermarriage between these Canaanites and and Hebrews, borrowing one another's customs, adopting elements of one another's worship practices, and therefore respecting one another's gods. And while that has all the nice-sounding aspects of various peoples coming together in peace and harmony and a wonderful multicultural understanding, the reality is that Israel's worship of Jehovah became greatly corrupted. And it would eventually result in God expelling the northern kingdom from the land as a consequence. Verse 6 explains that the census workers ended up in Judah at Beersheba, which is the traditional southernmost city of the kingdom of Judah and therefore of the united monarchy under King David. Then we're told, interestingly, it took nine months and twenty days to accomplish this census. It is rare that the Bible is ever so specific about time. So one has to wonder if there's something underlying the reason for giving us such precise information. Well, the ancient Hebrew sages point out that the correlation we probably ought to see is that this is approximately the same amount of time as normal human gestation. Now remembering that a lunar month is a little bit shorter than a modern day calendar month, we wind up with a time frame of around 290 to 294 days or 41 to 42 weeks. Although the number quoted regularly in modern times is 40 weeks of pregnancy for a human female, that's really just the average pregnancy period since the beginning of the modern industrial age. Medically speaking, the historical period of maximum nominal human gestation is said to be 41 and a half to 42 weeks. The same amount of time exactly as the census was said to have taken. So the idea can only be that the evil that was conceived in David's mind and then gestated until it gave birth to catastrophe is likened to the conception of a child that gestates until it breaks out of the womb and into the world. We of course find this similar birth metaphor used in describing Christians as reborn, born again. And then of the coming in times day of the Lord. Because it's equated to a woman who is at first in the pains of labor that signals the beginning of the final stage of a process that's unstoppable and it's inevitable. Well, the results of the census are reported as 800,000 in Israel and 500,000 in Judah for a combined total of 1.3 million. 
However, this number is not the total population of Israel. It's merely of the men of military age that's generally from around 17 to 50 years of age. So a conservative multiplier of 5 would account for males under 17 but over 50, those who weren't suitable for military service, plus all the many females from infant to elderly, slave to free, married, widowed, single, ill, well. This tells us that Israel was probably a nation of around six and a half million souls or something well over double that which it was when they had entered Israel under Joshua. Nonetheless, this figure is quite at odds with the parallel account of this census taken from 1 Chronicles 21. There, the totals are 1,100,000 in Israel and 470,000 for Judah, giving us 1.57 million males of military age. Even more, the Chronicles account tells us that Joab didn't even count Levi or Benjamin. So if this is the more correct number, then Israel's population was probably well over 8 million people. Now it's rather easy to understand why Levi wasn't counted. Because long ago they were separated away from Israel by Jehovah and were no longer to be counted among their brethren. This happened when the priesthood was established. And of course the Levites were also exempt from military service as an automatic result of not being part of Israel any longer. But why wasn't Benjamin counted? And since the scriptures don't tell us, anything I could offer would be speculation. It could be as simple as what's mentioned about Benjamin in the First Chronicles 21 version of this. And there it says, But he didn't count Levi and Benjamin among them because the king's order was hateful to Joab. In other words, Joab at some point just stopped counting because he was so upset with the whole concept of a census. And he apparently stopped before he got to Benjamin. So very likely, even though some behind-the-scenes politics occurred in this regard, it essentially amounts to Joab just not wanting to count Benjamin. So he didn't. Thus some rabbis say that the 1.1 million figure for Israel is taken from another tradition whereby David sent someone not so reluctant to count Benjamin after the census was completed. And the 1.1 million number includes Benjamin, perhaps even Levi. I don't find that very credible. Because it's unimaginable that Benjamin had regenerated so sufficiently that they had, since they had been made nearly 
extinct. I don't know if you remember that incident. All right, due uh, to the slaughter of the Benjamite men that resulted from this incident of a concubine at Gibeah. And while in some ways I can imagine David ignoring the commandment not to count Levi, I can't imagine the Levite population being so large as to add 300,000 more males to the population. So the bottom line is, I don't know why this discrepancy exists. Neither does anybody else. It could be and likely is simply a copyist error in either the Second Samuel or the First Chronicles account, but we really have no way of knowing which one's correct. Well, now that the census process is over, David suddenly realizes what he's done. And he confesses his sin to the Lord. So typical of David. The man after God's own heart. He has run exceptionally cold by doing what was wrong and now he runs exceptionally hot by admitting his trespasses. He repents without excuse. Most English translations say that David's heart, his leb, struck him. And this is quite literally what it says from the original Hebrew. The problem is that in biblical days, the heart was seen as the center of intellect and of morality, not of emotion. So because modern Western believers think of the brain as the seat of intellect and morality and the heart as the seat of our emotions, we assume that David felt the emotion of guilt. That would be wrong. The idea is much better expressed in the complete Jewish Bible where David's conscience, his moral intellect, realized on a conscious level he had done a foolish and wrong thing. The foolishness of his actions was validated when the next morning the prophet Gad shows up in front of David with a message directly from the Lord. And since David has already admitted his guilt to the great cosmic judge Jehovah, there is no point of a trial. So the matter goes directly to the penalty phase. (laughs) And in an unexpected and unprecedented action, the Lord allows David to choose his punishment among three options and on the surface it seems as though he was playing the heavenly version of a popular game show. What's behind door number one? Was a seven year famine. And behind door number two was that David would flee from his enemies for three months. And behind door number three was a plague upon the entire land. Why such a strange procedure? Probably this was a test of some sort to see if David would choose as wisely in accordance with the Torah commandments as he previously chose unwisely and unlawfully ordering a census. David says, hey, these are all terrible choices. So he'd rather give the choice back to God and suffer whatever the Lord chooses. 
Besides, says David, the Lord's merciful and he's hoping for mercy. Well, it shouldn't surprise us that the great lawgiver would choose to place upon David exactly the Torah prescribed penalty pronounced back in Exodus 30. An improper census brings a plague. Immediately it starts. And 70,000 Israelites die in a matter of hours. And it affects every corner of the land from Dan to Beersheba. That's the northernmost point to the southernmost. But when the plague was about to devastate Jerusalem, Jehovah stopped it. A couple of points. First of all, the term used for the 70,000 people who died was Om. And Om refers to God's people and nobody else. Thus, the only people who died were the redeemed Israelites, not the pagans who still lived in the land. Let that sink in for a minute. It is an interesting reality that God's laws and commands in one sense apply only to God's worshipers. That is, the Torah is not for pagans. So in general, they're not held to account for violating it. And this is because, since they're not God's people, they're already condemned. And this further means that to be a non-believer and to obey God's commandments in just a mechanical way in hopes of obtaining a benefit, well, it's just a fruitless effort. Only those who trust the Lord are obligated to follow God's commandments. And only those who trust and obey benefit from such obedience. So here we once again now run into this troublesome term, the angel of the Lord. Malach Yehoveh. Now usually the angel of the Lord is the Lord himself. And we see him speaking in the first person. I, me. But here we have Jehovah giving orders to this angel of the Lord. No doubt, this time, the point is to make it clear that this is not a human messenger, like a prophet, who has his hand outstretched over Jerusalem, but rather this is a heavenly messenger. It is an angel sent by Jehovah. And this angel is sent to destroy but the Lord refuses to allow Jerusalem to be touched because He has elected it 
to be the home of His temple. And so in His divine mercy, Yehovah limits the duration of the plague before it can run its full course. It's now clear from this story that the Lord used David's sin emanating from his own evil inclination as a vehicle to exact punishment on the people of Israel for their sin. The plague that's a result of David's sin of ordering a census is being used to punish the Am, the people of Israel, for their unnamed sin. Most Bible translations will say in verse 16 something to the effect that the Lord repented of his evil and did not destroy the people of Jerusalem. The complete Jewish Bible far better captures the sense of it by saying Adonai changed his mind about causing distress. The Hebrew word ra means evil in the sense of wicked, but also it means in the sense of calamity or distress. Since in the ancient world, all calamity was seen as supernaturally caused. The New Testament offers a very interesting parallel to this action of God and we find it in the book of Mark. Turn your Bibles to the book of Mark chapter uh, chapter 13. Book of Mark chapter 13. And we are going to start reading, let's see, at verse 14. We're just going to read seven verses, 14 through 20. Mark 13, starting at verse 14. Now when you see the abomination that causes devastation, standing where it ought not to be, let the reader understand this illusion, That will be the time for those in Judah to escape to the hills. If someone's on the roof, he must not go down and enter his house to take any of his belongings. If someone's in the field, he must not turn back to get his coat. What a terrible time it will be for pregnant women, nursing mothers. Pray it will not happen in winter. For there will be worse trouble at that time than there has ever been from the very beginning when God created the universe until now. There will be nothing like it again. Indeed, if God had not limited the duration of the trouble, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those whom he has chosen, he has limited it. Here we see that as Yeshua is standing in Jerusalem, Speaking about what is going to be happening in Jerusalem at some time in the future, he speaks of God stopping a horrific but divinely ordained calamity for the sake of his elect. And doing so before the duration of the calamity was even was appointed to finish. This is very much after the pattern we just read 
in 2 Samuel 24. Well, the remainder of this chapter explains how the site for the temple of God was chosen. And it was that very spot where the destroying angel stood upon Arunah's threshing floor that the temple mount was to be built. It's a wonderful reality and prophetic symbolism. The temple would be where atonement could be made for God's people and thus God's wrath upon them stayed. The temple would be located at the same place that Abraham took his son Isaac and bound him and was about to offer him up as a sacrifice when God stopped him. The temple is the place where the supernatural punishment that all people are due for our trespasses could be ordered by the Father to cease. It is important to notice also that the Jebusites were the original builders and inhabitants of the city of David and thus Arunah, the Jebusite landowner, is a Gentile. And when the prophet Gad came to David and he told him to set up an altar to Jehovah on that place, David personally went to Arunah and asked to buy the land from him. Now Arunah was shocked that David came to him rather than merely summoning him to the king's palace. And when David asked to buy the land in order to build an altar, the Jebusite responded by offering to give David the oxen for the sacrifice as well as the wooden threshing sled and the oxen's yoke for the altar fire. And in fact, those animals were used for the sacrifice. But notice, he did not offer to donate the land to David. David then proposed a price and Aruna accepted it. And now the stage was set for the building of God's house on earth. Now it's fascinating that just as the conditions for the construction of the first temple on Mount Moriah was a cooperative venture between Jew and Gentile, so it's going to be for the last temple. Zechariah 6.15 Those who are far away will come. They will help rebuild the temple of Adonai. And then you will know that it is Adonai Sevot who sent me to you. And it will all come about provided you heed carefully what Adonai your God says. Well, this ends. David builds the altar. He offers burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the plagues stopped entirely. And that ends our study of 2 Samuel.